0: Welcome to the CSIS Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Coulson. In this episode, we assess the implications of Japan's upper house elections. In Japan's parliament, the Diet, the upper house body does not possess the power of the lower house sibling. Japan had great political turnover during the first decade of the 21st century, with a new prime minister every year for six years following Junichiro Koizumi. Each legislative election in recent years has been monitored closely to see if the party in power, and specifically the leadership, can retain momentum. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's Liberal Democratic Party, or LDP, came into this upper house election riding a streak of relative stability. Following a vote on July 10th, the LDP triumphed in this election as well. We asked CSIS Japan Chair Senior Fellow Nicholas Cheney to assess what issues the Japanese voters cared about coming into this Upper House election.
1: Well, I think first and foremost, the Upper House election was a referendum on Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's economic plan. He uh, returned to power for the second time at the end of 2012. And his message was very much about his ability and the ability of his party, the Liberal Democratic Party, to provide a strategy for sustainable growth in Japan. The Japanese economy has been fairly weak for a long time. It's been stuck in a deflationary environment. You had political instability with a lot of government turnover from year to year. Put all that together, not a lot of confidence from the public's perspective uh, in the government to uh, generate economic growth. But when Abe resurfaced in 2012, uh, he actually came to the US and had a message, which was Japan is back, meaning uh, he was projecting confidence about Japan's future. And he laid out this economic strategy. The media quickly called it Abenomics. Uh, It has three components, monetary easing to try to generate inflation, fiscal stimulus to to obviously get some more government spending and, and consumer spending in the near term. And the third is structural reform, or what the government refers to as as a long-term growth strategy. And he's introduced each of those three since he came back in 2012. The results have been mixed. Still basically not an inflationary environment in Japan. So although the monetary easing arm of his economic reform plan is very robust, hasn't quite reached their goals yet. On the fiscal stimulus side, you've had record government budgets, multiple stimulus packages, and growth in fits and starts. And then on the reform side, Abe has done some concrete things that would instill confidence. He broke up Japan's largest agricultural union, which is one of the strongest supporters of his party, in order to pave the way for Japan's entry into the negotiations over the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade agreement. And basically put down a marker that trade liberalization is in Japan's national interest. And there are other initiatives on that front that that might bear fruit over time. So basically, the upper house election was a referendum on this economic policy. And whether the public would give him a chance to continue to build on this strategy or sort of give opposition parties more power to try to check that agenda. In the end, you know, he, he and his party prevailed. The ruling coalition won comfortably, and so essentially he'll view that as a mandate to continue this Abenomic strategy in, in its three parts. Polls before the election showed overwhelmingly that the public remains concerned about economic growth. So Japan is politically stable. Abe has control, solid control of both houses of the Diet
0: or the Parliament. But he has to deliver on economic growth, and that's going to be a challenge. If Abenomics is key, how is the implementation going? Abe has been in power since his reemergence in late 2012, and he has focused heavily on the economy. We asked CSIS Simon Chair in Political Economy, Matthew Goodman, a long-term Japan watcher, for his assessment.
2: Well, I always say that Abenomics is the right plan, and it's got the right man behind it, in the sense that it covers the three critical needs for japan to get its economy going and in a sustained way which are number one monetary easing aggressive monetary easing and i'll come back to you know talking about that in more detail number two supportive fiscal policy and number three structural reform and the greatest of these is structural reform in my view and again i can come back and elaborate on that so it's it's on paper it's the right plan and exactly what japan needs to move forward in a with sustainable growth it also i say the right man in the sense that as you said abe has been around now for what three and a half years he's probably going to be around for another couple of years at least and that's something that's been missing in japanese politics and it is something that has been sorely missing in economic policy because you need consistency over time and so to have somebody as the prime minister who is a, sticks around for a significant period of time and makes economics his top priority, at least you know rhetorically and I think in terms of what he's put his uh, policy focus on to date, I think is, is exactly what's needed. So then it comes down to implementation and making all those things happen. But I think at least you got the plan and you got the man. So far... I would say implementation has been mixed, and there's, I think, more to be done in a number of areas, but there's been some progress, and that's notable, and, and I think the question is uh, whether Abe, with this new mandate, is going to move forward and, and push forward to complete the, re- the rest of Abenomics.
0: Goodman points out that progress in the third arrow, structural reforms, is the most critical to ensuring sustainable growth for Japan.
2: Well, I think that on all of the uh, three arrows of Abenomics, monetary, fiscal, and structural. There has been some encouraging progress. In other respects, though, there is a lot more to be done. And so with respect to structural reform, which I believe is the the key to longer-term sustainable growth in Japan, the good news is that Prime Minister Abe has done some very important things in the area of agricultural reform uh, by trying to open up the agriculture market, Uh, change and lessen the influence of the agricultural lobby which has been a constraint on politics and economics in in, uh, Japan and there's been some good movement there not fully complete but there's uh, good progress there. He has done some good things in the corporate governance area introducing greater role for shareholders in driving corporate performance which has been a kind of missing element in the Japanese economy. He has also spoken about the importance of getting women into the workforce and making them more productive contributors, which is absolutely critical because, you know, this pool of, of human resources has been, you know, underutilized, to put it mildly, in Japan and is absolutely critical to the solution in a country with a declining population. You have to get the existing population working and working productively. So there have been some good things there, but There's a lot more that needs to be done. I would say, in particular in the labor markets, really getting those women into positions of authority and giving them real productive ability to contribute productively, and also just generally making the workforce more flexible, allowing people to switch jobs with their incomes, pensions, and dignity intact, and all of those things are important. And have been missing elements in Japan. Typically, if you move jobs, you, you take a hit in income. It was traditionally difficult to move your, your pension and your benefits with you. And it was not socially seen as acceptable to move move around to different jobs. All of that really needs to change in addition to making sort of working hours less shorter and making the working life more amenable to, to more productive society and economy. And there's a lot of work to be done there. And that's what I'm looking for Abe to focus on. It's in that area of labor market reform where I'm really looking to Abe with this new mandate following the upper house election to put his, his main focus. Because I think that's the, the key to long-term growth in Japan is, is making labor markets more flexible
0: and creating greater productivity of, of existing workers. How will Abe balance public expectations for him to continue to focus on the economy with his personal desire to initiate constitutional reform in areas that shape Japan's national security? Nick Cheney expects a balancing act.
1: Yeah, it's a very interesting question and one that's debated uh, in the media right now, looking ahead to the next parliamentary session this fall. You know, Abe himself has talked about constitutional reform many times. His party, the Liberal Democratic Party, is keen on doing this. Uh, A few years ago, the LDP actually released a draft revision of the Constitution. So it's no secret that he and and many people in his party would like to pursue constitutional revision. The ruling coalition already controls uh, the lower house of the diet with a two-thirds majority. That lower house is the more powerful chamber. Together with some smaller parties, as a result of this upper house election, Abe could also get a two-thirds majority in the upper house. In order to revise the constitution, you need two-thirds support in both houses of the diet and majority support in a public referendum. So the fact that, together with other parties, Abe could pass that threshold in the upper house generated this debate in the media about what's going to happen next. I think, first and foremost, Abe still has to deliver on the economic strategy. And without economic growth, the rest of Abe's national strategy, which centers very much on increasing Japan's capacity to contribute to international security, for example, depends on economic growth over the long term. And so I don't think he's going to suddenly pivot away from the economy and start talking exclusively about the Constitution. When he was prime minister for the first time, from 2006 to 2007, he talked a lot about international security and a lot about the Constitution, and very little about the economy. At a time when the public was very anxious about economic growth and really wanted to see some innovative ideas from his party, from from the LDP. So this time around, is there room for constitutional debate? Absolutely. Will it happen? I think so. Is he going to drop economics altogether and just pursue this constitutional agenda? I don't think so. It's a balancing act. There's plenty of room to debate all of those issues. But I think uh, Abe understands that the key to longevity for him personally and for LDP rule going forward to generate economic growth. So he's got to do that and also address other issues on the
0: policy agenda. And how do Abe and the LDP's victory in the upper house election affect Japan's opposition parties, particularly the DP or Democratic Party? We asked Nick Cheney to describe the current political landscape. Well,
1: I think with the LDP and the ruling coalition having such firm control of both houses of the diet, we're looking at a period of political stability in Japan overall. Uh, The next lower house election need not occur until 2018, and upper house elections are every three years. So you're looking at 2019. So presumably, LDP can remain in power for that time. And in the meantime, the question is, what's the opposition going to do? Democratic Party, or or DP, has always been a disparate group, always struggled to reach consensus on policy issues. And that was the biggest challenge they faced between 29 and 2012 when they governed for the first time. And so I don't see that dynamic changing within the DP. There are too many views, no individual leaders with enough power to coalesce around a cohesive agenda. So it's going to be difficult for the DP and and other smaller opposition parties to develop an agenda that captures the attention of the public. I think in this upper house election, tactically, the DP and the other opposition parties essentially uh, did what any opposition party would do, and that's criticize the government on the economic strategy, on security policy, and also on this question of constitutional reform. And they tried very hard to sort of scare the public and, and argue that, that Abe uh, is, is not a figure who would represent their interests and could abandon the pacifist principles that have governed Japanese foreign policy since the end of the Second World War. But they failed. That argument didn't gain much traction. So for the DP and other opposition parties, the challenge now is to come up with an articulate agenda that the public could compare to what Abe's doing. Thus far, they've, they've struggled to do that. To their credit, they do talk a lot about uh, welfare, social welfare, issues that are very hot right now in the policy debate, such as child care for professionals, getting more professional women to stay in the workforce. Those are ideas that that the DP prioritized when, when they were in government. So they are contributing to the policy debate. But I think overall, the opposition has not been able to come up with a cohesive strategy that's a compelling alternative to to what Abe is, is offering at the moment. The LDP, on the other hand, also has some challenges. Um, Abe is currently in his second term as leader of the Liberal Democratic Party, and the president of the party typically becomes the prime minister. So his term ends in 2018. So in order for him to remain in power, the LDP would have to change the party rules and grant him additional term, so that's an issue to follow. The other question projecting even even further afield is whether the LDP is nurturing a new generation of leaders who can carry this agenda forward. Uh, Abe is a very brilliant strategist. He's a pragmatic leader. He, he has articulated a very comprehensive strategy for the public to digest. What happens after he leaves? That's that's an open question and one that might have to be addressed a few years down the road. But for now, the name of the game is political stability, predictability in, in policy, whether you're talking about the economic agenda or, or Abe's priorities in international affairs. And then in the interim, the next three years, we'll see how the domestic debate unfolds.
0: Support from the agricultural sector and Japanese farmers has been a core part of the LDP's base and crucial to the party's long period of success. However, to make Japan's economy more competitive, Prime Minister Abe has begun to break up politically influential bodies on agricultural policy. Will this affect the LDP down the road? Matt Goodman explains.
2: Well, this has been one of the most challenging issues for the LDP uh, over time. As you say, the agricultural base of the party has been very important to their political success. But the demographics are changing. You know, the countryside is being depopulated. The average age of farmers is, you know, over 65 now. They're not as strong uh, politically as they once were. The LDP's support is now stronger in urban areas. And so the time was really ripe to take on this issue of um, agricultural reform, uh, but, but difficult, you know, challenging for, for Abe, and he deserves credit for, uh, for taking on that uh, really taboo in, in his party. I think it's going to be, uh, and I think he's done some, some useful things. I think there's more to be done. But I do think it's going to uh, be challenging for the LDP politically uh, to push forward, but there's some you know, the way they've portrayed this and, and positioned the issue, they're trying to give the agricultural sector more uh, of a um, focus on productive areas of activity. so, opening the market to subject them to more competition, but also creating more export opportunities. The existing system of protections and subsidies and so forth has has actually been discouraging to uh, the ability of Japan to export high-quality agricultural products. There's a huge opportunity for Japan to sell their um, high-quality rice, their fruits and vegetables. They have a tremendous potential in this area, and I think some of the reforms are aimed at trying to give uh, a new business model to farmers. To move forward. So, if he does that, I think that will maintain some of the support that he's losing from kind of the traditional, particularly part time farmers who are really just taking advantage of the system of tax breaks and subsidies to, uh, to do other things, but then get those benefits and, and maintain those protections, which uh, is what he really need, needed to take on and has done a pretty good job of.
0: What other economic initiatives could Abe put forward to continue facilitating growth, innovation, and investment? Matt Goodman argues fostering changes in business culture may matter more than specific government policy.
2: Right. Well, there are, again, all of the arrows actually of Abenomics apply to that question in a way. Um, the monetary easing, in theory, is meant to provide for a, a better environment for investment in the region, uh, in, in, in the uh, domestic economy. Fiscal policy certainly will be directed at, at uh, investment in, in public infrastructure, but also in new areas of activity like uh, elder care and and uh, nursing care and so forth, and if he if he encourages investment uh, in in those areas, that will be helpful in a number of a number of ways. And then in um, in structural reform, I think the whole point of that is really to create a more productive society, a more innovative society by through more, as I mentioned, flexibility in the labor markets, ability of people to start up new ventures, to get the capital to do that. So I think they need to create a a better um, venture capital market there. They need to make uh, bankruptcy easier in all senses of the term, legally and from a regulatory perspective, but also from a cultural perspective, because it's very difficult in Japan to fail. And they need to change that they need to let it be possible to fail and uh, let people uh, start up again and and then again allowing mid-career people to move around to different jobs uh, that's a key to innovation in this country so there are a lot of things that i think in particular it comes back to a lot of these reforms in the labor markets if they can do those things plus a little government money Seeding new innovative ideas and so forth, but it's not really government money that's going to solve this problem. It's it's more creating a, a culture of innovation through improvements in uh, labor markets in particular, and and then in sort of business conditions, particularly for smaller businesses. There's a, there's a lot of work to be done there, and again, I think that Abe gets credit for at least uh, focusing on those issues in plans and in his
0: rhetoric. And the question is, will he follow through? Another sector of concern for the Japanese public directly connected to the country's economic future is the role of nuclear power in Japan's energy mix going forward. Nick Secheny says the outlook is uncertain.
1: Nuclear power remains a controversial subject with the Japanese public. Understandably, a lot of concerns were generated after the March 11, 2011 Disasters. There was a new regulatory agency that was created after 311 that created new standards for the safety of nuclear power plants in Japan. And that agency is going methodically from plant to plant doing inspections. And the plan is to incrementally allow the restart of of nuclear power. Just recently, that agency uh, authorized the restart of a, a couple of reactors, but that faced local opposition and local citizens uh, voiced their opposition, went to court, and a local court granted an injunction uh, that suspended the restart of those nuclear power plants. So future of nuclear power for Japan's energy mix remains uncertain, given the uncertainty among the public, as evidenced by these, these court cases that I just described. The government, however, is, is updating its energy mix, and this fall... We'll begin debating the numbers for Japan's future energy mix, and those numbers will probably come out next spring. The the last set of numbers, which came out a year ago, had a drop in in nuclear. Nuclear was 29% of electricity production prior to the 311 disasters. The last outlook the government published had nuclear at 22%. So the question now is whether the government will try to keep that share for nuclear in the mix, or reduce it and compensate with other forms of energy, LNG, coal, renewables. So that debate is also going to pick up, uh, I would anticipate, this fall. And so the
0: outlook for for nuclear remains uncertain. The U.S.-Japan alliance remains an enduring feature of the security community for both countries. Nick's perception is that Abe's victory will ensure continuity and progress on security and international governance issues.
1: It means political stability in Japan, and for the United States, that means a continuation of a policy agenda that's focused very intently on strengthening the U.S.-Japan alliance, both in terms of security cooperation and cooperation on economic issues, such as TPP. Uh, And in this year in particular, trying to uh, rejuvenate the discussion of uh, rules and norms that should govern the govern the international system. Japan, as chair of the G7, has articulated an agenda on, on global issues and rules and norms as well. So for the U.S., it means a, a Japan is going to remain a reliable partner that wants to strengthen defense cooperation, work on regional and global economic issues, and sustain its leadership role in, in global affairs. Uh, and all of that is very much in U.S. interests when The United States is trying to further develop a strategy that puts uh, Asia at the forefront of of U.S. foreign
0: policy. On the trade side, the Trans-Pacific Partnership represents a keystone agreement for the future of U.S.-Japan economic relations, not to mention U.S. strategy in the Asia-Pacific. Prime Minister Abe most likely has enough votes to push TPP through for Japan, but what happens if the United States fails to ratify the agreement? Matt Goodman provides his analysis.
2: Well, I think it would be very problematic if it didn't ultimately, if TPP didn't ultimately get ratified by both legislatures. In Japan, as you mentioned, Abe does have the the votes uh, to get it through if he wants to. He's, I think, uh, rightly focused on trying to move legislation forward now that he has the the mandate in the upper house that he was waiting to get before moving forward legislation. You know, he's talking about going ahead. It would be you know, bold of them, traditionally Japan's waited for the United States on initiatives like this to move first, but I think Abe seems to be talking about you know going ahead with that and and doing what's necessary. But ultimately, the United States has to ratify too uh, that's obviously as everyone is uh, pointing out, going to be quite difficult. I personally still think it's possible that it could happen during the lame duck session. Not too many people will say that anymore, but I think incentives could really change after the election when there's clarity on on who's gonna be doing what in 2017, but it's also very possible it's gonna be delayed. Delay is okay as long as there is the clear prospect that TPP will ultimately be ratified. My understanding on the ground in, in Asia, people are already, it's already having an impact on the ground in terms of investment decisions and so forth people are assuming that TPP will ultimately be ratified if that ever changed that is people thought you know it's never going to be ratified then that would be quite serious i think for both the united states and japan individually and together in terms of our ability to shape uh, regional economic affairs and i think that would be quite damaging and we need to find some fallback but it isn't clear to me what Plan B is, because we put so much investment of uh, political capital into TPP. It would be very hard, if we can't deliver that, to then have the credibility to launch some new initiative or set of initiatives. So I think it would be absolutely critical for, uh, for us individually and then together in what we're trying to do in the, in the region uh, to get TPP
0: done. As Japan continues to push forward towards economic growth, and as the political conversation continues in Tokyo, here at CSIS, we'll be watching. That's our show. Thanks to CSIS Japan Chair Senior Fellow Nick Sei Cheney for his analysis of both the election results and the political landscape in Japan. Also thanks to CSIS Simon Chair and Political Economy Matthew Goodman for his insights into Japan's political economy and Abenomics. The audio for this podcast was edited by Francis Burkham. The podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit our new look, CSIS.org and kajadasia.com. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to our podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on CSIS.org. Also, be sure to check out the new China Power podcast. I'm Will Coulson. Thanks for listening.